From the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our role-playing game experience? This season, we're all about kids on bikes movies, where kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. I'm Rafe, film critic. And I'm Drew, game enthusiast. And today we're talking 2011's Super 8, written and directed by J.J. Abrams and starring Elle Fanning, Kyle Chandler, and Joel Courtney, among others. This episode will contain spoilers, so consider yourself warned. Yes. But, Drew, we yes. aren't talking about Super 8 alone, because for the first time, we have guests. And joining us as our first guests on Never Say Die are the creators of the popular Kids on Bikes RPG. Thanks for joining us, Doug Lewandowski and Jonathan Gilmore. Hey, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Are you kidding? This is amazing. You guys both have phenomenal podcasting voices, I just need to say. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> It's almost like we've done this before. Uh, <laughs> for a very no, long time. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so before we get into the movie, because we, we do the movie discussion, but we haven't had guests before. So we do want right. to talk to you guys a little bit about who you are, what, you, what you're bringing, that kind of thing. So why don't you share with us uh, kind of your origin stories? Like how did you get into RPGs or where did your love of movies come from or anything like that? Doug, why don't you kick that off? Sure. So I got into movies way before I got into RPGs. Growing up, we did not have cable. We had three channels. Uh, I can relate. <laughs> yep. And then Fox became a thing, and there were four, and I wasn't allowed to watch it. Except for In Living Color for some reason. But we had movies, <laughs> right? My grandfather, my dad's dad, had HBO, and he would record movies for us. And we were allowed to watch anything he recorded for us. So... We watched all kinds of stuff and we would just wear those tapes out and then we would get new ones from him. But the main ones that we really wore out, I think we went through two tapes for each of the movies, were the Star Wars movies. Oh, of course. Um, my brother and I were obsessed. So that was my, my movie origin story. And then role-playing games I got into pretty stereotypically through uh, Boy Scouts. <laughs> you know, somebody in my in my troop was like, hey, you want to play Dungeons and Dragons? And I was like, uh, I like the way that sounds, so yes. And I was a paladin, and he was boring and predictable, and I loved him so much. And then I went away from role-playing games for a really long time, uh, and then came back to it about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Cool, cool. Uh, yeah, so much of what you just said is the exact same experience I have. So I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jonathan, uh, what about you? Uh, so kind of similar. When I was real young, um, I grew up in a very, very rural area. So we, uh, you know, just had like PBS. Uh, I was I was close enough to Canada that we actually got CBC. So I grew up watching a lot of Canadian television. Nice. But I think let's see. It was probably 1985. It was when the very first WrestleMania happened. We got a satellite for that because I remember a bunch of family coming over to watch it. And um, so, yeah, so I was probably about six years old when we got a satellite system, you know, and a million channels that you could watch. And my dad was always big into gadgets and electronics. So, you know, he, uh, pretty early on, he got like a you know, VHS recorder and the, the top loading, you know, VCR like the old school style where like the camera, you had to carry around your VCR with you right, and plug the camera into it. So, you know, we started recording, you know, being able to record stuff. So I grew up watching 
and rewatching a lot of you know, movies because you'd record them so you could fast forward through the commercials and stuff. And so I, I loved movies and I was lucky enough that when I started driving, we had a, uh, a video rental store that did, you know, cheap, like seven movies for seven days for seven bucks or something like that. So I would just go rent stacks of movies during the summer and watch them all. So that's where I fell in love with, you know, like uh, all the kind of um, you know, cultish movies like Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, a lot of the stuff I shouldn't have been watching when I was 15 and 16, but absolutely fell in love with. And then as far as uh, role-playing games go, there weren't a lot of people that played them around me, so I didn't have anybody to learn from, but I bought the second edition D&D rulebook when it first came out and spent an entire summer trying to figure out how to play an RPG unsuccessfully. Because the rulebooks uh, do not do a good job of teaching you how to play. Um, they just kind of bar for rules at you for 300 pages. Right. So I didn't really get to play until I was older. Um, I you know, had a group in college that I played with for a little bit. And then when I moved to Ohio, um, I started playing more. But then, you know, having a full day D&D session just doesn't fit into your life as well when you have kids and work and everything else. So I kind of got out of it for a while and then re-sparked my joy of it when I found the Apocalypse World stuff and the Powered by the Apocalypse systems that are, you know, very quick, very low prep. And Fiasco, like Fiasco really sparked my joy for role-playing games as well, because we could just play a game of that at a game day and not have to do a bunch of prep and things like that. Such a good game. This is one of those things I keep on threatening Rafe with is uh, one day we're going to play, we're going to play some Fiasco. And now that it's, it's available to do so, oh, wait, Doug's looking really excited. Rafe, you've yeah. never played Fiasco. I have not, and I keep telling him, I mean, he keeps threatening me, and it's like, don't throw me in that prior patch. Please, please don't throw me in that. <laughs> Do you like yeah. Coen Brother movies at all? Oh, of course. Okay. Of course. Oh, no. Okay. It's then- not a thing that he hasn't done it because he wouldn't like it. It's just, it's just he just hasn't done it. It's going to happen. In fact, we should just end the podcast now. We'll play a quick game. <laughs> yeah, the rest um, of this podcast is just us playing Fiasco. <laughs> Funnily enough, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I was um, approached by a couple of folks who were big Fiasco fans, and I had played with them at conventions, and they're like, we're going to do a weekly Fiasco podcast where we're just going to take suggestions from folks as to what playbooks we're going to play, and we, we I think we recorded something like six or seven Fiasco scenarios, and to my knowledge, they were going to edit it and make it really polished and everything, and it, it never really happened. So maybe if it didn't, they never told me about it, but that's probably not the case. But uh, it is going to happen, and when it does, uh, Doug and John, you're more than welcome to join us. We'll uh, we'll throw down with some uh, with some fiasco. Yes, I'd love to. In in my defense, I I stepped uh, kind of like you both said. I stepped away from role playing games for a while. Kind of hard to play when you have kids, as you said. Yeah. Um, it took the pandemic to really get me back into gaming hardcore. Uh, so I, I've missed a lot of games along the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if you have enough time to watch a movie, you have enough time to play a game of Fiasco is what's nice. That is true. That is true. true. And and at the end of that game, you have a movie that, you, yeah. you know, if you just record it, you have a perfect script that, you know, I've never played a Fiasco game where the finished product wasn't better than, you know, some movies I have seen. Like, it's, it's always <laughs> going to be a better mm-hmm. plot than mm-hmm. – um, there's a lot of garbage out there. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, it's funny. Both of you were saying um, – kind of reminded me uh, – I remember – I didn't have cable growing up, but I would go over to other people's houses who did. And one of a kind of very strong memory from when I was very young was watching HBO at a fairly young age. And the stuff, which was, I think, 1985 came out. You're not eating it. It's eating you. 
Yeah, exactly right. I, I just and saw I, a cover for that today. And it is entirely possible. That was from my Facebook feed. I watched it in its entirety for the first time in 40 years last night from start to finish because uh, I just had these flashes. And I was just like, I don't know what came over me. But like, I'm going to watch this stuff. I haven't seen it since HBO watched it. It is a film. Uh, it is a film. <laughs> It is a movie. It is um. It is fascinating. And one day, Rafe, in our long list of movies, uh, maybe who knows? Maybe we'll gamify. Play maybe Fiesta we'll gamify. Instead. Not to cross <laughs> we'll promote, f- but I have not seen that movie. So, <laughs> oh, well, we'll put it on the growing list of movies I want to talk with you about. All right, we've talked about movies. We have talked about gaming. Uh, but you know, the reason that we are doing this podcast is because Rafe and I have been gaming for the last couple of years together. And of course, the game that we've been playing is Kids on Bikes. You are the creators of Kids on Bikes. Uh, I'm dying to find out how that came about. So please, what is the Kids on Bikes, the role-playing game origin story? So on the third episode of Stranger Things, like two days after it came out, while the fourth one was starting, uh, I opened up my laptop and typed into Facebook, all right, So who's making a Stranger Things board game with me? And John posted and said, "Uh, I'm working on one. And I said, oh, cool. Can I work on it with you? And he said, no. (laughs) (laughs) But let's let's do a role-playing game instead. And I said, that's awesome. And so we started working on Kids on Bikes. And uh, and yeah, I I made some questionable design choices uh, in an effort to pay homage (laughs) to second edition and some of the least popular things in there. Um, Uh, like, one one rule with an abbreviation for a name. Yep. But we decided that people probably didn't want to hit armor class zero in our game. Well, John did, uh, and he was right. And uh, <laughs> so we replaced that. Instead, his idea was to have a full set of polyhedral dice as like a way to pay homage to Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, That's cool. Which, which worked out. Yeah, so now they are the stats in any of the Powered by Kids on Bike stuff, and... Uh, that's the short version. Yeah, and then we uh, we stole the name from the board game that I was already working on because we were calling that Kids on Bikes. Right. Uh, and then several years later, the board game that I was working on before Kids on Bikes or before the RPG came out as the Kids on Bikes board game instead of a Stranger Things board game. Mm-hmm. Nice. So kind of full full circle, and we beat we I beat myself to market with Doug. <laughs> <laughs> It's always nice when you can be your own competition, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's covering the bases. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So, I'm um, okay, I'm kind of curious because, you know, having designed games myself, it's always interesting what kind of – when anytime you edit anything, is there something that got left on the cutting room floor that you're super happy that isn't in the game? Or is there anything that you, you cut out that you kind of miss even though you know it wouldn't have worked? Well, I mean, there's – Definitely things we forgot to add, like rules for bikes in a game called Kids on Bikes. <laughs> or, or fears in the first published version of the game. Fear, um, yeah, fears ended up on the cutting room floor by accident. No, I mean, we our, our process is, you know, usually to cut all the fat that we can. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there was definitely a lot that fell off, but I think the core of the game was all very there from, like, that first or second call when we came up with the the die is the stat system. Yeah. Probably the biggest argument that we had in the original game was whether dice should explode or not. Or no, I think I think we definitely decided on dice should explode, but whether they should be limited in the number of times they should explode, or if they just should explode to infinity. Uh, which I was I was the proponent for infinity. Yeah, and you were right on that one. But we compromised on they explode until you succeed. Yeah, which is 
more complicated than I think it needs to be at this point. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anytime you have an exploding die situation, I can think of a couple of stories from just playing, you know, the sitting around the table and like rolling that 20, then house ruling, rolling that 20 again, then house ruling that, you know, that you roll that 20 again. It's like, well, listen, you know, you've rolled three 20s in a row. You can roll four, uh, you know, like that sort of a thing where it's like I, there isn't a rule for what just happened. So I'm just going to house rule something now. Uh, and those are the that's when memories get made. Yeah, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. John John's philosophy is let people do the fun thing. Um, and exploding dice is the fun thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we've since one of the things that was troublesome for people in the initial rules for kids on bikes uh, and teens in space was the notion that luck plays into the exploding die, that it's mm-hmm. not. It's not an expression of skill. It's an expression of something just happening to go your way. And in the Junior Braves of the Apocalypse that was released using the Kids on Bike system, they introduced those as lucky breaks, which is just the perfect way to describe them. So we stole it with permission permission, uh, for Kids on Brooms. So going forward, those will be lucky breaks. But I, I think the only thing that got left on the floor that I agree with leaving it on the floor, but I kind of miss it is when we were thinking about it as a Stranger Things game, in that first season, there was such a focus on like duality and the upside down that our initial thinking and design was each of the stats is paired with something that's its opposite, right? Fight or flight, charm or grit, brains or brawn. And the initial idea was that if you have a D20 in brains, you necessarily have a D4 in brawn. Um, and if you have a you know D12 in charm, you necessarily have a D6 in grit. And eventually we decided that was just limiting. Why couldn't people play, make whatever character? You can be strong and smart. Right. Um, and I, th- I think that was uh, an example of you shoving my let the players do the fun thing philosophy back in my face. When you're like, <laughs> How about uh, we don't have that restriction instead? <laughs> well, I think we I think we came to that together. I, Maybe. Yeah. It just sounded better saying that you don't. Sh- sure. Yeah. <laughs> I had a good flight roll. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. Um, Stranger Things is the catalyst for the creation of this role-playing game. How far into the creation process did you stray from Stranger Things and start looking at the kids on bikes genre? Or did you? It, was it was Stranger Things always sort of the, the main kind of onus for the game? So I think it was probably less than a month where the publisher... So as soon as I started working on the board game, I had contacted a publisher that I had a good relationship with and was like, hey, can you get the rights for this and I'll design a game? And they looked into it and there was a really weird situation where, you know, Netflix at the time was doing tons of license agreements to do, you know, licensed shows, but they had never licensed out their own creations to other companies. And they wanted a ridiculous amount of money to license Stranger Things at the time. Yeah. And this is before they like came out with the the Ado Waffle board game and all the other stuff. <laughs> but like that first month, they wanted like something like forty percent a net or more than that, like just a ridiculous amount. It was over fifty. I want to say it was seventy. Yeah, it might have been seventy percent. It was whatever it was is ridiculous. Like we we would have even if we made money, we would have lost money. On it. Right. Right. Yeah. So as soon as I had that conversation, I think Dud and I started to talk about. If we should pivot it and into what, and it was pretty obviously immediate to us or immediately obvious to us that, you know, 
hey, we love all these you know, kids on bikes media. I was super into paper drills at the time. And I don't know if you had read it yet or if we had just talked about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I hey, know. you know, read read paper drills. And, yeah. you know, we started talking about Goonies and everything else. Yeah. Was there a specific film for either of you that once you started veering away from Stranger Things, you went, this this is my, you know, this is my Patronus here. This is the this is the sort of the one that I want to make sure in the same way that you used your polyhedral dice in an homage to Dungeons and Dragons, was there a film from your childhood that you're like, I need to make sure we have something in here that kind of pings off of that? Not for me. I, I actually didn't watch a ton of these movies growing up. I watched Goonies when I was in my mid-20s and was like, why? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've never seen Monster Squad. Don't watch it now. It does not age I, well. Yeah. No, I'm good. Uh, we, we used a lot of slurs back then. We're not okay now. Yeah, yes. no, no. Um, I think I got maybe 10 minutes into it with my kids and stopped watching it. <laughs> right. Dad, but why? You're such a, <laughs> you're such a good man. Um, <laughs> so for me, it wasn't so much it wasn't so much a movie as like the way that I grew up. I grew up about three miles outside of a town. And so I biked everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like... I would bike into town and then bike past my house again to go to the town on the other side with my friends. And then, you know, we would be gone for seven or eight hours at a time. Um, And so like drawing on that and that, I I think for me, there were like moments where the world opened up for me. And one of them was when my mom said, sure, you can go out on your bike. You need to be home by dark. Cool. I am free. I'm out. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when I could drive, but kids in cars isn't. Uh, nearly as exciting. <laughs> I mean, we can see if we can get that uh, comedians in, top, in cars have a coffee license, though. We'll yeah, make that yeah. RPG. Well, <laughs> family in cars is what I'm really after. <laughs> You've mentioned a lot of the iterations have built upon the original Kids on Bikes game. Uh, so we have to ask, you know, where where is this going in the future? What future projects do you have that you are at liberty to talk about? Because I'm sure you guys have plate spinning that you're not willing to talk about yet mm-hmm. yeah we have uh we have a super secret project that we can't talk about yet but i mean we can talk about after the podcast and then the announced thing is kids and capes which we did live streams of the early design process mm-hmm. and then now we're working on you know, moving that design forward fantastic i am um, i'm excited about that one <laughs> that was an amazing experience and anyone listening to this podcast that didn't get a chance to watch that live when it was coming out are, are those twitch recordings still available to uh to check out uh, yeah, i think I hunters put the bods on yeah. yeah yeah it was so much fun i was like every friday night that was my that was my thing like not that I had a lot going on during a global pandemic, but it was really <laughs> nice to be able to go, all right, make myself a nice big cup of tea. I'm going to sit down and watch folks hash out a role-playing game in front of my eyes uh, three hours a week. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was really looked forward to seeing where, you know, the previous week's conversation led into the next one. Um, I love the fact that you kind of gave us homework and gave each other homework. And so like just reading the, the, the conversation in um, the channels in the chat, 
to see what everyone else was like. When you would make a suggestion, you kind of hit that point. Someone would hit that point and like the chat would explode uh, <laughs> because it's a bunch of role players who are getting excited about gaming mechanics. And yeah, no, it was really wonderful. Yeah, that was a really great experience. I would 100% do that again. Mm-hmm. It was so much fun. Yeah. And then the other thing we have coming out in the kids online is uh, we have two adventures coming out for teens in space. Um, oh, nice. Those have been written. They're currently in layout, which I think I can say. Yeah. So Kristen and Tim Devine, uh, Kristen was on with us for kids and capes. And then Yunsu Kim is the other, is the writer for the other adventure. Uh, they're fantastic. And uh, yeah, we're really excited about how those are going and starting out the cosmic adventures. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's one I haven't gotten a chance to explore um, yet. I've got the books, read the books, have the groups, just haven't haven't nudged them in that beyond the horizon level of gameplay. Oh, but it is coming. Sure. Like I just hear my players going, wait, we're doing what now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, let's go ahead and get into what we actually do on the podcast. But thank you guys for, for answering those questions. We really appreciate it. Oh, um, absolutely. Pleasure. As Drew said at the beginning, we are talking about 2011's Super 8 on this episode, and this one was picked by Doug. So, so Doug, I'm going to throw to you. We always kick this off with an elevator pitch, which is just a really super simplified version of the media's plot, of what the movie is about. So what would the elevator pitch for Super 8 be? Yeah, so the elevator pitch is, what if it was a love letter to both filmmaking and to E.T., but E.T. was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Rafe. What if E.T. was absolutely terrifying? I have my own E.T. terrifying story. We just haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> uh, so, so, Doug, why why Super 8? Why why is this the one that you picked? Because we, we told you pick whatever you want and yeah. uh, we'll go with it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is my favorite Kids on Bikes movie. And, and I think it's cheating a little bit because it's, you know, filmed with a more modern sensibility, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not running into the problems that we're running into in like Goonies or Monster Squad, right? But the the thing that struck me about this is, and this is something that I thought Abrams did so well uh, with Cloverfield too, which I know some people were, were not fans of, but that the core of the movie wasn't really about the monster. It was about the main character's emotional state. And the monster was just a way to explore that and a way to express that. Um, And I'm an English teacher full time. So like anytime you can bring in a good, uh, a good overarching allegory and metaphor, uh, I'm here for it. The first time I watched it, the the climactic scene where he's staring the monster in the face and talking to it brought me fully to tears Mm -hmm. and rewatching it certainly really choked up. It's just great. And I think the, all the kids in, in there, their acting is fantastic couple grown-ups with some questionable chops there but um, <laughs> you do have to love it in a kids movie when it's the adults that are the weak links though instead of the instead of the kids <laughs> like alice's dad what are you doing bud like <laughs> anyway um so yeah so that's why i chose that one fantastic okay when did you watch it for the first time uh so for me I had apparently convinced myself that I watched it and had memories of watching it, but I've never seen it before. <laughs> so when I watched it for this podcast, um, I discovered that what had happened is I'd watched the trailer over and over again and played. There was like an interactive movie experience video game um, that came out from the company. 
And I had played that. And basically, you get to like explore the train wreck scene and stuff for like 10 minutes. So I played that and watched the trailer and just thought I'd watched it and talked about it for years. Like I knew everything about the movie. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've had that experience with other movies before, so I understand it all too well. Mm-hmm. But I did, I did, to, I got to watch it with my uh, youngest son uh, together. So he got to experience it fresh as well. Awesome. Uh, Doug, when did you first see it? I saw it. I don't remember. I know where I saw it. So I, I saw it at home. I watched it by myself. So probably in the summer while my wife was at work and, you know, I was lazing about as one of those overpaid teachers. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm an English teacher too. That's okay. where I'm laughing at this. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So it was shortly after it came out on video or on DVD. I probably rented it and watched it. Cool. Drew, you've been awfully quiet over there. When was your uh, first Super 8 experience? You know, I wish I could say that I saw it in the theaters, but I didn't. I don't think. I'm pretty sure I didn't. I watched the trailer, though, a lot. And I think in in 2011, got some other stuff going on at that time. We were kind of moving to a new town and everything. So I think I, as soon as it became available on DVD, I I brought it home and watched it a couple of times. I wish I could say that I I saw it in the theater because I feel like it's one of those films that would probably be best suited um, that first time, because I, I want to see it with an audience, mm-hmm. um, especially having rewatched it as many times as I have in the last month or two. I think it's a because every single time I've watched it, it has just been by myself and I have been watching it to gamify it and to kind of learn the inside and outs of it um, for this podcast. So I've never actually got a chance, I don't think, to like watch it with a group to just simply enjoy it, uh, which is um, which is odd. How about you, Rafe? Uh, well, I'm the only one in this group who gets to say this, but I saw it in the theater. This came out 2011, the height of my film critic uh, role uh, for a website. Uh, so I was going to the movie theater every weekend and seeing whatever new came out that weekend, usually two, three movies in a row. And this one was one that I'd seen the trailer I was looking forward to, uh, and I was not disappointed when I saw it in the theater. Now, I will say uh, I had not revisited it until watching it for this podcast. I had not gone back to it. I had seen it in the theater, loved it. And I was a huge J.J. Abrams fan at the time. I, you know, I was fully into Lost and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, it, it's interesting revisiting it with some distance from that feeling now mm-hmm. for, for talking about it today. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like we all pretty much had a pretty positive experience watching it. We'll get into the, the details of it. And we're not the only ones who had a pretty positive experience for it. I mean, it was fairly highly rated on, on Rotten Tomatoes, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, 81% critic score at Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, that's that's pretty good for that. And I mean, heck, that's better than some of the movies we've already talked about on this podcast. Yes. Audience score at uh, 75%. So the critics and the audience tend to agree that this is uh this is a good movie. So yeah. let's let's talk about it. We we look at the movie uh through the lens of the good, the bad, and the ugly. What were the highlights? What are the bad bits? What are the worst bits? Uh you know, what what do we like, what do we not like, what do we hate about the film? Uh, so we'll start with the good, and I think we'll just go round robin as far as um, what did we think was good about this. Uh, Drew, since you've been the quietest right now, we'll let you kick this <laughs> off. Well, I already mentioned that I think the trailer is phenomenal, and I rewatched the trailer this evening. The initial trailer has everything I wanted from a trailer, and I think I would have to go back and look at how you know, the top X number of trailers for movies, you know, in the last 20 years or so. But I'm going to say it's ranking in the top 10 because 
it gave me just enough to pique my interest, uh, and then it gave me a little more to really pique my interest, but, like, it gives none of the mystery away. I couldn't tell you what the plot would have been from the beginning, and the idea that this is a movie where one of the main plot points is a movie is being made. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you what the Super 8 is and why the Super 8 is important, but just the I, the, the shot of the camera on its side and the reflection of something happening in that lens stuck with me. And I was just like, I got to see this, got to see this. I clearly, clearly didn't. But um, <laughs> I, I, I got to say, just even before the movie even starts, fantastic trailer. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Okay, Doug, the good. Most of it. I mean, I'll I'll build off the one I said before the the climactic moment where he has where he has that face to face thing with the alien at the end, and it's its eyes switch, and it's it's looking at him the way he talks about his mother looking at him, right, and mm-hmm. really seeing him. And you've watched it four times recently, so you could tell me if this is true or not. Does he see himself reflected back in the alien's eyes? Do we get that shot? Not only does he get that, but the alien's eyes are his mother's eyes. Like oh, it they, goes from a They truly, really actually are. They really actually are his oh, mother's wow, eyes. Okay. So they, oh, they use the actress um, from the Super 8, mm-hmm. and which is, we could talk about what the actual significance of the title is if someone else wants to go with that one. But yeah, uh, the uh, as I kind of watched, I've one of the reasons, that, one of the times I watched, I watched it with the... Um, the commentary, fantastic commentary. Surprisingly enough, uh, they actually, I think, text Spielberg uh, <laughs> during the recording of the commentary. <laughs> and, and the thing I love about that is, like, John's heard me rant about this more times than he probably cares to to think about. But one of my pet peeves in movies or media with kids is when the kids are like written like nineteen year olds, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Forsooth, verily, I think we ought to go over in this direction. It is the best plan. Like, kids are like, we should chuck a rock at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. I got this. Hey, I know bad stuff happens. And, like, it's such a kid move, but it's also restrained, right? Like, it's making the the connection to his mom super duper clear, right? Showing that, like, moment of catharsis for him. But it's not, like, a five-minute monologue about, like, and, you know, when I lost my mom, I thought, and then I was really mad at her dad, but now I realize it wasn't, like, it doesn't do that. It lets us do that. And it's yeah. more restrained than most movies know to be. And then I love that there's, I think it's like an explosion and that distracts the thing. So we don't actually even know if it works. Right. right? Like, I, I love it. That's my. Okay. Good. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, John, the good. Oh, I I would have to say the cinematography. I was instantly transported back. Like they made it look like all the best parts of you know a uh, kids on bites movie from you know the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. but um, without all the problematic stuff, which I absolutely loved. Like it just right away, I was you know completely smitten with the style of it and how well everything was executed. Abrams doesn't always hit home runs for me, but like this one easily was. Oh yeah. I mean the, the way some of the shots are framed just the, the, the I mean, it's a love letter to kids on bikes type stories, the way that mm-hmm. some of the shots just, you know, capture the kids, you know, rolling up into a stopping place or, or that kind of thing. I, that that's absolutely one of my favorite things about it. I love that aspect of it. And before he went overboard on lens flares, like he did in Star Trek. I mean, there's some in his, but you, you not... did see the start of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he had but just discovered lens flares, I think. 
And somebody was like, I like the lens flares in this. He's like, then have I got a deal for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, those lens flares feels like the kind of lens flares you get in those yeah. late 70s, early 80s kind of, kind of films, too. And it almost feels like, oh, you clearly our technology removes the lens flares. But if you want to make it feel like that period, add some <laughs> lens flares. Right. And it makes and a lot more sense than if you're, you know, say, in the 24th century. <laughs> <laughs> and... uh my other favorite thing was uh, the fact that the guy that plays Scully in Brooklyn Nine Nine was in it. Yes, and I was like, yeah, I was like, no. is that is that Scully? Like, I had to rewatch it like three or four times, and then he talked while eating, and I was like, <laughs> oh, that's that's Scully. Oh, 100%. right, yeah, yeah, he's the dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. He's Charles's dad. I did, yeah. I did yep. notice that, and because uh, you just said that, I'm like, wait, what did I miss? Oh no, yes, yes, and he's great in this. Yeah, he's, so no, good. he's really good, and it, it has that fantastic thing where it's like your mom is disproportionately a lot hotter than your dad. Like, it's it's one of those classic 80s pairings where it's just kind of like, you know... Anyway, doesn't... It gives, it gives guy like me hope, Drew. Come on. I mean... <laughs> I, I was saying in my notes, I actually have written, always good to see Scully. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Drew, I'm going to break from our tradition uh, because John took... Mine, the cinematography is what I wanted to talk about as a good, but so I'm going to point out the score by Michael Giacchino, yes. uh, which is, is mm-hmm. it, it, as, as the cinematography is a love letter to those types of movies. So is Giacchino's score to like John Williams and E.T. and that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's so perfectly suits this movie that I actually, uh, sometimes have to watch just focused on the score because otherwise it blends so well into the movie. It doesn't stand out at all. It's just, mm. it's just a, a, a it, it's harmony between the visuals and the music that's going on. It's just a beautiful thing. Giacchino has been my discovery of the pandemic. Being able to access just a wide library online, I was surprised at how many scores that I have liked from the last twenty years have been Giacchino scores, mm-hmm. um, all the way from the uh, the Incredibles up and. I have been listening to uh, the Super 8 score, um, the Star Trek, we, we kind of mentioned that a little bit, the Star Trek score is phenomenal, and it's like, it get, just gets me jazzed, and I've I've been listening to more movie scores in the last two years than I think I ever have in any any time in my life, and, and he's a big part of that. The man wrote a beautiful eight-minute piece of music for a movie that doesn't have a score. His his uh, theme for Cloverfield, Roar, is one of the best pieces of movie music that you don't get to listen to unless you sit through the credits because it's mm-hmm. not in the movie at all because it doesn't match the found footage thing. Um, right. But I, I think his work in this, not not to get distracted by his other movies, I think his work in this is just fantastic. I mean, it's it's so so wonderful. It's very Amblin-esque. like it. And that and I, yeah. I mean, every time I was writing my notes, I was like, man, this score is fantastic. What does this remind me of? Oh. Right. Steven Spielberg films from the 80s. I mean, it, like the fact that he's produced this film and his kiss and touch is very constant. It's always near. Um, and I think it's it's such a loving homage to those those films in addition to other uh, kids on bikes. Yeah, he did the uh, story for the Batman, right? Yes, I think so. I yeah. haven't seen it yet. So I was I was hit by how well the score was done in that. And yeah, uh, like he, he tells it every time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm very oh, much guess, looking uh, forward to looking at that. Yeah, movie. he also did the story for uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. Yes, well, mm-hmm. yes, he's done the Spider-Man mm-hmm. movies. I knew that. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's an amazing composer. I mean, he is. 
Uh, I mean, the fact that I've already compared him to Williams says something, I think. And right. he's definitely making he's, – he's playing on that level of, you know, Williams and Elfman and Newman and, and composers that, whose names we remember. His, he, his name is alongside their, those for a reason. Uh, Drew, did you want to go with another good or are you ready to move on? Oh, no. I have like three other goods. Oh, okay. Um, All right. Well, um, then have at it, man. <laughs> before I get to talk about how good the acting is by the kids, something that we discuss on every one of our episodes because it's it's very hit or miss, I want to say that the beginning of this movie is one of the best I have ever seen. It is the slow pan to the factory that says... It was 784 days without an accident, and they take off the sign, and they mm-hmm. put the one up. And, you know, like, you have to be very dense not to understand what is being set up, because the next shot is a smash cut to him sitting outside of a snowy house, dressed in a black suit, swinging alone in the swings. And it's just like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what happened. And it's it's marvelous. It's one of those scenes where I feel like someone came up with that scene and then wrote a movie around that in the same way that Will Ferrell in um, Stranger Than Fiction says, I brought you flowers and she's a baker and it's just a a bunch of different packets of baking flour. Um, Like that's an idea someone had and then wrote a film around it. That's one of those moments that's just kind of genius ping. And like, I have complaints about this film, but it immediately is like a goodwill that scene is a goodwill ambassador for the rest of the duration of the film just for me because I if I feel like I'm dipping out of it I think back to that opening scene I'm like this is just this is genius it's yeah. worth it for that opening scene with the music score everything brilliant yeah it's such like a wonderful economy of storytelling right like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. we don't need more than that it's it's that restraint again right Doug, do you want to add some good to this? You know I do. The scene where they're watching the home movies, where Joe and Alice are watching, as I was rewatching it, I was thinking like, man, this could have been so hokey. Mm-hmm. And Fanning just crushes it. Like, crushes it. she acts the hell out of that scene without making it seem like she's acting the hell out of that scene. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Like, oh, it's so good. And it's so believable. The Again, the kids acting, all of the kids acting in this are so good. I can't believe I'm going to ask this question. Are both of the kids in focus for that shot? Because she's right up in the forefront, right? It's sort of like that that scene in The Thing where we've got I, – I know there's a technical term for it where you've got someone in the foreground and someone in the background and they're both in focus and they have to use a special lens for that to, to keep it from blurring out. Deep focus, pretty, right? Deep, deep focus. Exactly. I'm pretty sure they're both in focus for that scene, which is something that – I don't think I would have caught initially, but the hmm. fact that she's – it kind of also pans on her in a way as she is understanding what is happening and we're seeing in her acting the break point where she decides that she's going to tell him the thing that it could potentially ruin this friendship for them. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. All right, Jonathan, anything uh, else good you want to add? I think y'all covered most of it. Yeah, I'm kind of in that same boat. So, Drew, if you've got more – I think it's time to. I think it's time to to grab that shovel and unload, man. Yeah, no, I think I think I'm good. Um, I again, just the acting across the board is is um by the kids specifically. Uh, I think is phenomenal uh, and one of the best examples in any movie that we have talked about or will talk about. Yeah. Um, and and Elfani mm-hmm. is is carrying most of that. She's shouldering most of that weight, but rightfully so. I mean, because she is who she is. Okay. 
All right, well then let's move into the bad. What is something that you don't like about this movie? Doug, we'll start with you this time. I was going to say, I'll start. Um, (laughs) Like, would it kill them to have more than one girl their age in this movie? Like, would it devastate the filmmaking to have another girl who likes acting who is friends with them and isn't doesn't start out as just the love object who happens Mm -hmm. to have a car right like like i don't think it rises to the level of like problematic although like one of my notes is like ah yes typical ignoring of boundaries that works out for him um (laughs) yeah Yeah. there's some of that but like would it kill them to have another like girl or two on set that's my top bad And that's something we've talked about with a lot of these movies is that it's almost as if the storytellers don't know what to do with female characters. So either they omit them. In this case, we have the one and her purpose is to be the love interest. Although I'd say she does more than that. Um, Or then you get into the Goonies where you have several, but they don't really have a purpose. And one of them, even their characterization is completely lost over the course of the film. It's like they it's it's almost like the storytellers don't know how to to mix the genders of these kids, which is weird, because if you think about when we were that age before we really started falling in love with girls and that kind of stuff, it it wasn't uncommon to to have that happening. Right. Yeah. Like my best friend in one of my like three best friends in middle school and high school was a girl. And like the bike rides were me and Mark and Tim and Sarah and Courtney and Allison, like some mix of that group. Right. And then Eric before he moved away. But like, yeah, it's a, it's a valid complaint. I have a complaint that bounces. So like my bad bounces off of that. If, if I may, may jump in here with that one, not to defend this, but I was a group of of guys in middle school and high school who made films together and in none of those films, sadly, I still own, I have them all, which is, that's a a totally different story that no one will ever see or hear. But the one time we (laughs) invited a girl to the set, it was someone who we all liked, you know, like it, that was like towards the end of that. And I think it was the last film we ever made together. But um, (laughs) that's neither here nor there. The thing that I didn't like about this is by the end of the film, it is no longer a kids on bikes movie. It is a, it's sort of a love story. Like, I feel like we lose the group. Oh yeah. And we just have Joel, Alice and Carrie sort of right. And I, what I would have, like, I think what would have soared this to make it my favorite kids on bikes movie. um, It is not uh, spoilers for when we start rating this would be the group falls away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's perfect. I mean, it's the kids on bikiest kids on bikes film up to the point where the other kids disappear and it just becomes one person's journey in the same way. I feel like it's a little, little ET ish in that we're just sort of the main character that we've been focusing on. Yes. There's, there's a girl who he cares about, but we haven't really seen much, like she becomes a damsel in, the, in that situation, sort of bouncing off of what Doug said. But like, it's not the relationship. It's the fact that I lose the rest of the characters and the other characters aren't as well defined. Right. Like Preston, don't really know much about him. Martin, don't much know much about him. Like, I love my Charles. Uh, you know, like Alice is pretty cool. Joe is pretty cool. Carrie is, we'll talk about Carrie in a moment. But um. Like, I feel like I wanted more to know about them as characters, and then they just sort of disappear for the third act. So that's that's, that's super fair. Yeah. 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 That's valid. 
my complaint is going to build off of that as well, but I'm going to let Jonathan go first. So, John, uh, what's bad to you for this movie? So, I'm I'm going to be bad at this part because I think, like, the Marvel movies are high film. <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that opinion, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you enjoy what you, you like what you like, sir. Uh, like, uh, Doug and uh, our friend Ian will probably tell you that, like, in general... My tastes are very bad because I just enjoy everything. And I also tend to watch movies through the eyes of my kids more than mm-hmm. through my own. Um, and that that's why I like fell back in love with the Marvel movies after kind of being snobby about them. But you know, same with this one. Like, I just turned my brain off and enjoyed it. And like, beside the stuff that we're probably going to talk about in the ugly section, like none of it. I didn't even think the acting was that bad. Okay. Like, I'm, I'm a, I'm, it's hard for me to be displeased with a movie for the most part. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. Well, so here's my complaint about this movie. Doug, it was nice knowing you the brief time that we talked. (laughs) 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 We've already talked about how awesome the trailer was, right? This is not the movie you think it is. This is not the movie it claims to be. This is not a kids on bikes movie really at all. It is an emotional journey for Joe. But everything else, the 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 big story that got everybody into the theater and the, the train crash and the alien and the E.T. kind of close encounters kind of aspect of this that it's a love letter to, the kids are superfluous to that story. They don't interact with that story at all. They're adjacent to it. But if you took Joe and Charles and everybody else out of this movie, that story it has no change to it whatsoever. It is it, it is a cool monster story, but it has nothing to do with the kids, really, other than in our climax. It gives us a nice climactic moment uh, when he has the exchange with the alien. But even that, as you said, he the alien then gets distracted by an explosion, and, and which Carrie does set off. But but most of this story doesn't involve the kids. Like they, they're they're just next to it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that on my first viewing of it. I realized it when I was rewatching it for this, and I was like, oh, it's it's kind of the 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 big bang theory when they talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark, that if you took Indiana Jones out, it he doesn't impact the story really. And it's kind of the same thing here where the kids don't really impact the story. But then I realized it's an emotional journey story. It's not an alien story. And and so that kind of ties into what you said, Drew, as far as like that's really that's why the rest of the kids fall by the wayside because the heart of this movie is Joe's emotional journey but that kind of makes it less of a kids on bike movie as much as it's a love letter to those kinds of movies that's not the story that ultimately is being told here um so i'm in 100% agreement and i didn't bring <laughs> that up in the first part of it cuz i wanted to i wanted someone else to to do it I, this is the first movie that we've discussed where the kids are actively avoiding the plot of the film <laughs> until the plot of the film gets them in the third act. Right. And they have almost no, they are bystanders to what is happening in the background. Right. But they almost have no agency until one of their own is directly affected, which is, which is, which is the third act. But I think that makes it more believable to me. Like that's yeah. what sure. I would have done. I would have, I would have stayed the hell away from the monsters. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and my my point with that is actually the thing that I find bad about it is it becomes a uh, it's it's a kids on bikes kind of summer movie, and then it becomes 
sort of an alien story that they're peripheral, you know, in the same way that, say, something like Signs is, right? Like, it, we're not seeing the main thing. We're seeing what the smaller group, it, it, how that's affecting them. Then you cut around that layer and we have a love story. And then you cut that one and it's the catharsis of loss right. um, that is being felt on both sides, both by Joe and actually by the creature itself. Mm-hmm. But if Joe doesn't make that connection with the creature, it doesn't affect the creature's story. But the creatures, um, that moment affects Joe's story because he's allowed to let go, right? right? So we have that moment where he actually, we see the actual personification of that letting go within the locket. But we're just spoiling everything for this movie. So uh, that's I, I why we gave the warning up. <laughs> Absolutely. <front. laughs> um, you know, you know, I cried. Raise your hand if you cried. I mean, we can't see John, but like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, absolutely. Know, yeah. I absolutely cried. And like, I cried on the first watch when I didn't 100% understand why I was doing that. And I cried on the second watch when I absolutely understood. And I cried on the third watch when I realized that like, you know, you could rewrite this. And I, I cried on the fourth time when I was like, how am I going to, what, what is the truth of this? It's going to be exciting for a role-playing game. You know, right. so I mean, like there's, there is something that rewards you for multiple watches in this film. And that is something that not every movie can accomplish. And so I actually applaud it for that. But to your point, Rafe, and to your point, Doug, and to your point, John, like, I feel like we all kind of pulled something out of it, but we're all dancing around that one truth of like, what is the kind of nature of that? It doesn't, it pivoting, I, I don't feel like it pivoting makes it not a kids on bikes genre movie. Like, That'd be like kind of saying, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil from dusk till dawn here. So uh, <laughs> has everybody seen it? And if you I, haven't, I have uh, not, but it. I have have had it spoiled for me. So all right, I mean that's kind of like saying that from dusk till dawn isn't a vampire movie because it pivots halfway through. Right. Sure. Allow me to explain what I meant by pivot. It's not a kids on bikes movie. By the third act, it is a kid on bikes movie. Um, yes. And no, it's I agree with you about dropping out. He's the only other riding kids. one bike. To be fair, it's right. a kid on bike movie. <laughs> You're right. It's a kid on bike movie. And that's one of the things that when we select films for this podcast is we have to decide whether or not it's a kids on bikes movie or a kid on bike movie. And there's a couple of films that I desperately want to talk about, but we might not give them their own episodes because it does fall kind of into that weird um, subsection of kids on bikes films where there is a, a protagonist rather than a group of protagonists. And the reason that we don't talk about them as much is we don't role play as much with just one per one person and one game master. Um, and so like, we kind of want to focus on groups. There's nothing wrong with the films inherently. It's just, you know, there's a lot of them out there. We want to focus on the ones where there's enough representation so that a, a group of players sitting around a table can feel like they're being represented. That's that's all. That's why I want to say it's not a kids kids on bikes movie, but a kid on bike movie slash love story slash personal journey of growth. And it's not a complaint about like I still enjoy the movie. I still oh, like yeah. the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not. It, it falls into that category of it's not the film that it is made out to be. It's not the film that is hmm. marketed. When you dig into what it is, it's not the film it was marketed to be. And I I hate it when studios do that. And this is the second film in a row that that we have discussed. It is that did that because now and then did the exact same thing. But but doesn't that make it like an even more perfect? text about grief right like oh yeah yes it absolutely does like the way that that comes out of nowhere right the way that that frames everything when you've when you've lost that even if you're trying to have it be one thing it turns in it it always comes back to that thing it always turns in the grief becomes all-consuming and takes over everything yeah until you let go 
until yeah. yeah. That's a good. This, that's this a is good kind point. of less a critique of the movie and more of an observation about it being a kids on bikes genre movie, right? Yeah, right. I think it's, right. it's yeah, kind yeah, of the yeah, crux yeah. of this. When okay. we when we rate this film as a movie and as a kids on bikes movie, this conversation would have happened at that point in in the podcast. It's happening now, mm-hmm. and that's and that's yeah. fine. I have another bad, but I want to make sure, and someone else can go uh, if they they like. No, nah, that's all I had. Okay. <laughs> Here, let um, me tear we, apart we, the foundation of the entire film. That's not enough bad for you, <laughs> Drew? <laughs> we talked about, I, I mentioned Alice's dad's acting. Um, yeah. Yes. But, that, yeah, yeah, I don't need to belabor that. My bad, my next bad is Alice's father and Kyle Chandler, Jackson Lamb, Deputy Jackson Lamb, is if you watch the DVD, there are deleted scenes, and on the whole, the deleted scenes make perfect sense why they cut them. One of the things that we didn't really kind of go into um, that I love about this film is the pure, it's a kind of like the, the purity of the love story. And it actually, which we don't see often, which is a uh, love at a certain age. And, and this is from personal experience too. I feel like it's not a love trial between Alice, Joe and, and Charles, but like I get Charles, like, Charles revelation that he invited her because he liked her. And then of course somebody else, she likes somebody else. Like I get that I've been that Charles, but there's a certain purity and beauty to these scenes between Alice and Joe that I, I, I kind of long for in films where like it's innocent love, right. In, in a, in a, in a completely almost platonic form of love that two people have kind of found each other. And there's three scenes, but we only get one of them. And so my complaint is there are there's a deleted scene where the two of them are saying goodnight to each other. They've walked he's walked her home um, right before she get actually gets grabbed by the alien. That is just so pure and so lovely that if you have the disc and you haven't watched them, please go and watch those. But there's another moment where he's putting the makeup on her, and there's that like that barrier of touch. That hasn't really happened, and it's and it's innocent, right? But like it's it means a lot for both of them because there's that level of intimacy. And the same thing, mm-hmm. and this is a good thing, but um, when she is the zombie and pretends to bite him, and that she breaks that his kind of personal space in a way that is again innocent, but also incredibly significant for both of them. So my bad point is, I wish more of those scenes had been kept in there because I feel like it strengthens that relationship, and it's a, in a positive way that we don't see very often. There's also a scene with both of their parents because I don't feel like the parents are necessary. They're both jerks. They're both grieving in horrible ways, but I feel like so frustrated every time they come on the scene because I understand what they're supposed to represent and they're representing a barrier and they haven't broken through their grief and they have to understand that like they have to get over their loss so that they can love the, like have it be a family again. But like mm-hmm. we never actually see both dads together in a way that makes them makes me feel like they have forgiven each other. Like there's that scene in the car, but I don't feel like it's enough. And there's a couple of deleted scenes where we understand that they have to work together in order to find their kids. It's only an extra five minutes. It was absolutely necessary. It's a real bummer that it's not in there. Okay. That's fair. And I just realized that was my one of my uglies. So, uh, so well, there we go. Sorry. <laughs> Whoops. All right. Well, then that takes us into the ugly, which I guess we'll start with Drew. Uh, oh, you just went. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, 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 Doug, uh, ugly. Anything in particular that you just really just don't like? Can I do two real quick? They're, they're very different. All right. So one is when they're going to find, you know, they've, they've broken out of the 
military camp and they're running back through the town and everything's going haywire and you know somebody shouts like the weapons are misfiring and it's like why why (laughs) magnets don't make gunpowder why you don't they don't need to be misfiring it's fine if they're not so so that was just like like so eye rolly that it took me out of it for a second and then i was right back in but then when they're on the bus and the kid throws up and then the bus rolls, I can't have been the only one who was watching it going, no, 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 he threw up right there. Yep, the throw up, yep, ear, up. And that just like viscerally, I, it wasn't bad. It didn't take me out of the movie, but just like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. John, ugly stuff. Uh, so I had uh, the representation written down as mine and that covered that pretty well. In as far as representation, it's a white film, but like, it's also, you know, there are, there are parts of, of the United States that are, that are just white. And, you know, it's like, I get it. Uh, I, I don't have anything to contribute on the ugly, uh, oddly. So anything else anybody wants to throw out there? I will say I misunderstood the, the bad and the ugly distinction there, um, at first. So mine actually the worst part of the movie for me I would agree with John. Yeah. Yeah. And and then, yeah. and unfortunately that comes up in our ugly almost every month. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's um and it I think it's, it's kind of interesting too if you look at this as a time capsule of a time period, right? Right. This is almost the genesis of this next stage of kids on bikes, right? Like the Stranger Things is after this. You you kind of have to wonder if the Duffer brothers watching this movie got them that ball kind of rolling mm. to to bring that back around. Because I remember watching this and going, oh, yeah, that feels like it's a reference to so-and-so. And, like, so when Stranger Things came, I was already primed for it. Like, this movie primed me for that. Let's see. I feel like there was one more thing. Oh, I just just quick mention of the bus. We almost have the exact same scene in our second film that we talked about, which is Attack the Block, which is um, the authority has kept their kids from doing something by putting them in the back of a a police vehicle and then immediately the aliens attack and uh, the authorities are taken out like it's like uh, it felt like they were telegraphing that scene early on I almost wonder if they were looking at Super 8 and went we should it's only like a a couple years later we should maybe like do that scene anyway that I I feel like (laughs) I'm mentioning it there because it felt would have felt like we were come plucking out of thin air if otherwise gotcha all right well let's move on uh be- <laughs> i hate this segment so much uh- <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you should not hate this segment this is all right listen i, I know what you're gonna say so i want to throw one more thing out there i guess it would have kind of as light but there's so many wonderful homages to the time period throughout yes. this film that i just like looked at and went oh so good so good i love that one of the reasons I rewatched this film as much as I did is I liked watching it and freezing the frame and just kind of living in that world and seeing the world building, particularly in Joe and Charles's rooms. Oh yeah. Um, brilliant. One of the things that I do with kids on bikes when I run a game is 
when we introduce a character, I usually pause the, the action and ask my player to describe. But the, when we first introduce the kids, it's usually in their room so we can describe what their room is like. Um, and we can get a kind of like a little interest in who they are. They have a blue peachy folder, very similar to the ones that are available. It's I saw that. For the briefest of moments, and I wasn't like looking for it because I didn't realize they could have been blue. I was looking for the, the tan one there, but I was like, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. That was brilliant. Thought that was brilliant. Just wanted to throw that out there. All right. So we always talk about uh, which kid are you from the movie? Uh, which kid best represents uh, who you were at that age? And I'm going to go ahead and knock this out because uh, the, the, there's no way I wasn't Charles. You know, right. I, I I was the filmmaker. I was uh, studying special effects and films from the moment that I fell in love with Star Wars. Uh, as soon as I was old enough to read books about special effects, I still have most of those books about special effects. My family was not uh, wealthy enough to have a camcorder uh, of our own. So I did at one point look at Super 8, which unfortunately by the 80s had kind of fallen out of uh, easily being able to acquire. Uh, and I remember a friend having a video camera and the number of uh, short movies that we made with that because that was and they, I was always the one calling the shots because I was the one that had the vision so there's that was definitely the kid that I was uh, Drew there's a kid that can't pay attention and likes to blow stuff up I was Carrie in fact <laughs> this is really important Rafe this movie is what inspired which kid are you because I remember watching that this movie going my god God, I was that kid, wasn't I? Uh, and, and I kept on going, which kid was I? And like this, this was the the impetus. This was the moment where like that bit was born. Uh, was watching watching Carrie. Like, yeah, pay attention. No, light things on fire. Yes. <laughs> and and Charles also liked the girl and didn't get her, so that also feels you know representative for oh, me. Listen, so. <laughs> there's I got a lot of DNA with Charles. I've I mentioned that before, but if we are looking at uh, and and there's a couple of teens in here that we don't really talk about. Like we we see our main cast, but like Donnie and Jen are both teenagers. They don't get any kind of screen time. Jen gets almost no screen time. She's pretty, and that's sort of it. Like the one girl is the older sister who they use her sexuality to get what they want from the stoner. But like Donnie's still a teen, I think. I think yeah. he's meant to be like eighteen. Yep. So th they're up for grabs too. If you want to, uh, you know, claim it, let us know a little into your. Uh, <laughs> I was not a stoner, uh, so uh, no, no, no. I, no. I was definitely not the pretty girl. Uh, Doug, which teen were you, or which kid were you? <laughs> oh, Donnie, absolutely. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, can I can I hybrid it? Is that sure. is that permissible? Yeah, um, like like the less cool parts of Joe um, and Martin. Growing up, especially at that age, I was I, w I was girl obsessed. Uh, to be fair but also like extra awkward the way Martin was. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I was just somewhere in between the two. Um, I was, I was tall. Uh, I was 5'10 by the time I hit fifth grade, which sucks. Don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but, but also like awkward, but in a sad way. So combination <laughs> of the two. Not, you weren't charmingly awkward? It wasn't It wasn't the fun awkward until junior year of college when I started taking antidepressants. And then I became the delightful awkward I am now. There you go. <laughs> John, how about you? Uh, you know, I think a hybrid as well. Like, you know, I loved, you know, we had that camcorder that I talked about earlier. So I used to always make films with my uh, cousins and yeah, my uncle. 
there were always really bad parodies too. Like we we made Ghost Dusters, which was just a thing about vacuuming ghosts. Nice. It was real bad. That's awesome. Um, so you made Luigi's Mansion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they only royalties now that I think about it. I loved blowing stuff up and lighting stuff on fire. So I definitely, you know, resonated with uh, Terry. And, you know, I had, I, I lost my father at about the same age. So Joe really, you know, hit home with me too. Like kind of uh, all three of them. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. All right. It is time to rate the movie. Uh, now, when we look at these movies, we rate them on a double axis scale. So we look at, first of all, how good of a movie is it? And then secondly, how good of a kids on bikes movie is it specifically for the genre? So Drew, how good of a movie is this? It's interesting because I ha- I wrote some a number down and I feel like I, I kind of I'm going to give it a, a 0.5 boost. I think I'm going to give this an eight. I think Doug's passion sort of has swayed me to draw. I, I had a 7.5 originally and it, it's mainly because of sort of the third act and I'm seeing it more. I, I get it. It's nice to talk to somebody else about it. I'm seeing it more of a strength than a weakness. So I think I'm going to give it an eight. For, for overall, for a film. There's okay. some things I would have liked to have made it a better film, but it's still a really good and clearly rewatchable film since I've watched as much as I have. Okay, cool. Doug, on a scale of 1 to 10. I would say it's like an 8.5, I think. It's not quite at the level where somebody was like, hey, is this a great movie? I don't know that I would say, like, this is a great movie. I would say, like, I love it. It's... It's very, very good, but there are just a couple moments that take me out of it, a couple moments that are just a little too hokey, right? The, mm-hmm. gotcha. the locket-powered rocket at the end is like just a little bit much, a <laughs> little on the nose. 8.5. Okay. John? Yeah, I, I would say it's pretty easily in eight, 8.5 to me, somewhere in that range. It's not a movie that I would watch over and over again, but it's one that I definitely enjoyed watching and don't have any regrets like I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I, I feel like it was really solid for me. Cool. Um, yeah. I, 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 my complaint about the kids being superfluous to the to the action story aside, it is a really good emotional journey story. Uh, and so I'm also going to rate it a, a lot higher than I originally thought I was. And I'm, I'm going to say an eight as well. I think that's a, that's a solid fitting for it. So, yeah. Like I would without – even without the alien, I would watch these kids make a film – over their summer break. Oh, sure. Like, and with all the tragedy, everything else, all the characters that they were, I even the train crash, like how that affects things, I, I still, yeah, agreed. Okay. All right. Then how good of a kids on bikes, and I'm going to emphasize kids on bikes <laughs> movie, do you think this is? Again, on a scale of one to ten, uh, where do you think this fits? Drew? I'm going to give it an eight. Like I said, this is the kids on bikeiest kids on bikes film. Like everything that I love about the kids on bike genre is in here for the first two acts. And it's not until the last act where it stops being a kids on bikes and becomes a kid on bike kind of understanding of like, I feel like everything that we love about the genre, it's still there. It just gets muted towards the tail end and it's still a good story. We have already covered this. So yeah, an eight. Okay. Doug. Prior to this conversation, I would have given it a 10. <laughs> I'm sorry, Doug. <laughs> but no, 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 no. I, so the fact that it's not part of the genre isn't isn't a problem for me. But but I mean, to rate it in the genre, it's obviously a problem for me. I think I might have to say like 
six and a half, seven. Okay. Ouch. Because no, I I mean in terms of it being part of that genre, not its quality. These are these are separate. I think right. Like yes, yes absolutely. Yes. Com- yeah, and to- if yeah. you want some reference, we can tell you how we have rated other classics in the in the genre, um, just to kind of see where that stands too. You know, like we gave Goonies a ten. Like we use that as kind of like sure. the gold standard for kids on bikes, even though they're rarely on bikes. But right. like, right, like like vamp or the Bronx versus vampires. I would give. I don't know if you've watched that yet on Netflix. Oh, we will cover that one. I, we have not covered it yet. I, I mean, like, okay, well then, no spoilers. But I would give that uh, a two digit rating for uh, out of ten. But yeah, you've you've convinced me. I think I got to give it in terms of a kids on bikes movie. Uh, six and a half or a seven. It's still the kids on bikes movie I would most want to watch again. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay, John. I mean, I'll I'll maybe notch it half a point for reducing the number of kids and the number of bikes by the end of the movie. But I feel like, to me, yes, kids multiple and bikes multiple are essential. But I don't feel like if if it was a movie with no bites and five kids, I wouldn't rate it differently than a movie with, you know, three kids and three bites the whole way through. So I, I would probably have to go with 9.5. Like, I, I get what y'all are saying. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but I still feel like the highest high points, way, 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 like, even with the average of, like, the end of it kind of dropping it and becoming a story about just the one kid, I, f- I feel like it's still a 9.5. Yeah. No. Okay. I think it's, listen, I think that's a perfectly fair, and it's sort of like we expose what we're bringing to the film as an audience member when we, we kind of rate it within, you know, our, our personal preferences. Like, you know, we, we have basically said that we, we thought, like, Goonies was a 10 for kids on bikes, but I rated a much lower as a film. You know, like, that right. sort of thing. Like, it's sort of like when you think of the genre, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so. Yeah, I, John, um, I think you've convinced me. I think I gotta go higher. I'm not gonna pick a number, though. Just higher than what I said before. <laughs> yeah, like, like yeah, I wouldn't yeah. ding E.T. because it's about one kid for the most part. I would. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, here's uh, I'm going to take my turn. We're all about kids on bikes movies where kids 18 ages, 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so. And I don't feel like, I, as a kids on bikes movie... I don't feel like the kids have the agency. There's a lot of cutscenes that the story takes place away from the kids. The kids are superfluous to that story. I don't think it's really a great kids on bikes movie. It's a great movie. I enjoy it. I, I mean, I, that's why I gave it an eight as a as a movie overall. But I think as a kids on bikes movie, I've got to go lower. And I'm going to say I think it's less of a kids on bikes movie than Attack the Block, which I gave a six. So I'm giving this a five as far as a kids on bikes movie. I love these conversations. <laughs> I love these conversations because how boring is this conversation if all four of us completely agree? Mm-hmm. Because we all brought a completely different point of view for it. We all have varying different degrees uh, of this. And it just means that we're all, again, bringing something different to it. So I love it. I love it. I, I you know, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to tell you that you are clearly mad and should be relieved of duty. Uh, I... I <laughs> I'll hand I mean, over the keys to the podcast. System, so I'll try to respect it. <laughs> All right. It's time for our draft. One of our favorite portions of the show. Uh, we are drafting a kids on bikes team using characters from the movies that we watch. So each of us has a kids on bikes team of seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. Uh, our teams thus far 
Uh, my team is made up of Mikey from the Goonies, Pest from Attack the Block, Edgar Frog from uh, the Lost Boys, and Adult Roberta from Now and Then. Uh, my team consists of Data from the Goonies, Moses from Attack the Block, Grandpa Emerson from the Lost Boys, and Sam from Now and Then. Now, typically when we do this portion... Uh, there's a little game to it that the person who picks the movie doesn't get to go first in the draft. However, Doug picked the movie this time. Yeah, He's not did. part of the draft. So it is not either of our picks. So, Drew, we are going to settle this the way all gamers should. We are going to roll off to see who gets to go first in the draft. So you have your D20 there. I if have you will my give D20. it a roll. I assume we're going highest. Yes. Wins, highest, right? highest goes. Yes. All right. I got a 10. I also got a 10. I think I'm I think my dexterity is higher than yours. I, no. So I no, think no. you I think you both have to say it at the same time. Oh. No, but I, I really actually like listen, we got a tie. You know what? I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to let Rafe pick first. How about that? I, I think No, it, I think we have to roll a second no, time. No, I I, I think well, you both have to say Doug it is at making the, same the rules. Time. Okay. Yeah. And if you Okay, both, give me a second. If you say I have the to decide same who name, I want. If you both uh-huh. say the same name, canceled out, neither of you can have that person. Neither yeah, of us can like have that Period, or we have to select again. You, uh, you have you, to select again, but you can't select that one. You, yeah, you have to select again, but not that one. Okay. Fair. I'll do it. All right. Are you ready? We'll I, do I, it on three. So we'll one, two, three, shoot. Okay. Yeah? All right. One, two, two three, three, Alice. Charles. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Uh, okay, Alice was my second pick. Uh, Charles was gone. my second pick. And Charles actually would have been my first pick too. Um, but I, I, I guess why did you pick Charles? I'm, I'm kind of curious. Um, I, 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 I'm just looking at the makeup. Like my gut reaction actually was originally go with Carrie because mm-hmm. man, that is one wild kid. But I've already got pest on my You've team. You've already got pest. And yeah. then at that point, it's redundant. And I feel like Charles brings a. Like, I, I said from the get-go, you know, Mikey is the leader of my team. He's got the heart. He's the soul. But Charles has a responsibility and a maturity to him and a plan. Like, Mikey mm-hmm. is very much fly by the seat of his pants, what's coming next type thing. And Charles has this vision of the movie that he wants to make. Plus, I just want to see him carrying the film camera around these other characters. So. <laughs> I think Charles leads with his head while Mikey leads with his heart. Which is one yeah. of the things that I, I kind of like him as a character is I don't think Charles has to be in charge. And that's what I was going to say is it's kind of like your argument with Moses. I don't see Charles as the leader of the group. He's the director of the movie. So as yes. far as like, I don't think he comes to my kids on bikes team and takes over. I think Mikey is still my leader. But Charles brings a voice of reason reason and maturity and responsibility with him. And I also think he's gonna, he's gonna not throw a wrench in, but I think there's, he has, it's not like chaos. Like like you get a kind of an agent of chaos with certain, some of these characters, but Charles is going to, he's going to split the party at some point in time in an interesting way. I feel like the dynamic with Charles. So the reason I chose Alice is I don't have a Mikey on my team. Right. I actually think that Alice is a heart character. I agree. Um, and I think she is someone who has, who is both kind of like emotionally open, but is also emotionally closed off. And I think she will help the group in the same way that being a part of the group would help her. I think if, uh, well, we'll stat her next episode. Um, right. And I have some ideas, but I also didn't feel like I had a character like Alice really on my team, with the exception of Sam 
And I think what's interesting is I think Alice and Sam will actually really pair off each other quite a bit. So Nice. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll start talking about gaming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Red Dirt D&D brings you the world's greatest role-playing game with an Americana twist. The actual play Dungeons & Dragons podcast featuring local actors and veterans of the game mixes fantasy and Wild West. Red Dirt D&D prides itself on bringing you the game like you've never heard it before, complete with original music and sound effects like a classic radio drama. We also work to keep the program short, only about 40 minutes, so you can easily listen while commuting or working out at the gym. Join four adventurers as they travel into the Caliban frontier in the original world of Ratoya. New shows drop every Wednesday and are totally free. You can listen to the latest episode and catch up with past performances on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you get your favorite online programs. You can find out more information at Red Dirt D&D on Facebook, Twitter, and at reddirtdnd.com. Welcome back. Uh, it is time to discuss how we can gamify the film so that anyone can play an RPG session inspired by the movie, regardless of the system that you are using. So the first thing we want to discuss is, even before we start playing a game, what do we talk about in our session zero that is important for our expectations of the game as players, as a game master? What is it that we discuss that gets us in the mood to be inspired by Super 8. Rafe, is there something that, that is popping out that you think we we definitely need to discuss? I, I think much like we kind of talked about with the last movie we picked, Now and Then, you have to get a little bit into family dynamics. If this is, as we talked about with the movie part, actually an emotional journey story, then you have to understand where that journey is coming and Therefore, you can come up with a plan of where that emotional journey is going to go. So I think especially like family dynamics would be really important to discuss in a zero session. I think that's a really good point. And the other thing I would I would stress with that is if we want to, as a group, if, if your players agree that maybe one character's journey is going to be not more important, but kind of the focus of part of the story, I think we can decide that as a group. Yeah. It's okay because we can enable and uh, assist with that journey. Like, we can know that our story is partially going to be working out. You could even, for instance, choose a theme. You know, in this case, it's grief, right? Letting go or, or coming to terms with something. But you could choose something else. Right. Um, but I also, at that point in time, for our player's safety, you're also going to want to make sure we're all cool with whatever that uh, dynamic and that emotional journey is. I think that's that works out really cool. Uh, Doug, do you have something you want to um, throw in there? Uh, maybe kind of uh, before we get started? That was going to be my main one. That uh, you know, okay. I think everybody has to be on board for this being so everything orbiting around that. That's not something you can spring on players, right? Right. No. Yeah. No. And it, we're going into this with the assumption that it's like, hey, you want to play a game based off of Super 8? I think we're all in agreement to at the beginning that that's where our mm-hmm. kind of like the genesis of the ideas are going to yeah. be too. How about you, John? Yeah, no, I I agree 100%. You need to have that conversation and just make sure you don't just throw the people into it. Right. That's my main thing. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the other things too we would probably want to discuss is really if we're going to if say for instance we're making this as a kids on bikes game and we're playing with the kids on bikes role playing game I think figuring out the time period like 
to like yeah. the aspects of the town. Like if we're doing this in Dungeons and Dragons, I still think you really want to because we are setting in this this town is very much a part of the story. Working around like how we are relating with that um is going to play a big choice. And I would echo something that we kind of covered in our Attack the Block is I would want to know where each of the characters live in relation to the other. So in Attack the Block, we were looking at vertical homes, like where you are, who is your neighbor, who is above you, who is below you. Um, in this one, I would maybe put out a map and and figure out where we are because there is going to be, like, even if you're in a spaceship, like where is your quarters versus somebody else's mm-hmm. quarters, there's going to be traversing and very similar to Goonies, a lot of the action takes place under the city, right? Like this, right. there are so many little homages to all the other things. So having an idea of where you are spatially, I think would be really important before we got started. Well, uh, if no one has anything else for our session zero, let's talk about the truth. Remember that the truth is as long as you're following these truths, these are your, your kind of like your North Star, as long as you're following these, this is always going to be true. You're going to be able to capture the spirit of Super 8. And this is the first one I want to jump into. It's just very, very general, but I also think it's very important is whatever your mystery is. Now, in, in this thing, I'm going to call the the alien the mystery. So rather than the threat or the alien or the monster or the creature or the bad guy, whatever the mystery is, it does have to affect the entirety of the town. And the town has to be aware of it. They don't know what's causing it, and they don't know who's responsible and or what the overall implications are. But I feel like you have to have everyone involved because from a game master's perspective and even a player's perspective, think about the great play choices that will generate. And and I, I just really emphasizing this, if your characters and your players come up with, well, I think so-and-so, the farmer or whatever, is going to feel it's this, that's true. That's true right. now. Like, mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. that, build that world. You know, the captain of whatever, uh, the the ancient librarian of the dark arts, um, the the mutant rat who's been raising you as children. Like, whatever your system is, like, let that be true. Because I think that's going to really be fun for the building of the surroundings. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it has to be sympathetic as well. Are you saying the, the mystery has to be sympathetic? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like, I, I was sympathetic to the alien the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that what's interesting is I think the sympathy can come as you are learning about it. Like, you know, you always mm-hmm. get the it's a mystery, it's a dangerous mystery, we know more about the mystery. I feel like that there's an arc to that will yeah. play. I mean, not just not just to mirror the movie, but it just makes sense narratively that that works, especially as kids. You know, like we're curious, we're terrified, and now we're going to choose how we're going to react to these things. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And that way you have progression of story uh, emotionally right. as well as as the actual narrative itself. Yeah, I like that. And in addition to that, and unfortunately after this, I got to I got to bounce. But um, fair. The um, I had a, so much fun on here. Um, I would <laughs> We'd love having you. Yeah, I would love to do this again. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think one of the truths about the monsters, in, in addition to being sympathetic, there has to be no way for anyone in the town to actually stop it correct yeah Mm -hmm. i like that idea like it's not they figure out a way to drop it into a cave it's not there's nothing they can do they can sympathize with it or they can get out of its way maybe both right but that's it that it's an unstoppable force 
And it's a tricky thing for a game master to to deal with that because your players want to be able to win, but at the same time, you can't just say, well, nothing that you try is going to affect it. You have to figure out a way to resolve the story right. in a way that doesn't have the players defeating it right. physically. Right. Uh, you can convince it, right? Like right. maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. In, in that sense, you are that unstoppable monster. Uh, we have no way of stopping you from leaving. Uh, so uh, as you leave, just know that my locket is flying towards your spacecraft, uh, allowing you to move further on. As I'm going, I'll be real honest. I feel bad about taking your locket. I feel like it's an insignificant size of metal. But, you know, as they say in The Simpsons, uh, but the sentimental value is off the charts. <laughs> so that, that's what the rocket ship runs on. It's, it's right, a, right, right. A locket rocket. Yeah. It's a locket rocket. There yeah. you go. All right. Well, All right. Doug, thank you so much for being a part of this. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you, sir. Yes. I'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Uh, all right, on to our second truth. And, and uh, you know, it's funny, Drew. I never thought now and then would be the movie that I keep coming back to, but I've already referenced it once, and and now I'm going to do it again. Uh, you mentioned one of the truths for now and then was that there's a summer project to focus on uh, right. until taken over by the B plot, uh, and that that definitely exists in this. In this case, they're making the movie. That's their mm-hmm. focus. That's their plan for the summer. But it's particularly important because the the idea of getting production value—that's the phrase that keeps being tossed around in this. Right. Right. That's what brings them adjacent to the larger issue at hand. That's what orbits them around the actual narrative that that they're being drawn to is that production value. So the film within a film part of this movie is actually a lot more important than just a gimmick. It's 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 got its own agency and its own importance and you kind of need to have that if you are running a campaign or a session inspired by this. Your your kids have to be kid filmmakers in some capacity, which they yeah. can have a ton of fun with. I mean, I'm going to argue that I don't think they have to be filmmakers. I think it's whatever their project is that they're working on. Okay. You know, like mm-hmm. they could be, listen, we, uh, you know, John, you mentioned paper girls. It could be a paper route. Like we are going to be establishing the very first paper route in whatever our city is. We have at least one half of a session where they're building on that and we, we feel for that and the characters are in, invested in that. And then somehow during the paper route, the B-plot emerges. Or, I mean, this is – you're asking a lot of juggling for our game master, but that's what we sign on for. So I have no problem with that and I love the idea that – and again, this is the sort of te- storytelling where you want your players are going to work with you. Like, right? Like they know that – Super 8 is what we're working on. They're going to work with you to to get to that point. So whatever creative endeavor, whatever business endeavor, whatever summer camp adjacent, whatever it is that they're doing that seems to be the first act importance, I agree. Like I, But and the funny thing is when I was first thinking about the truth, it didn't even occur to me. And it should have been the very first thing. <laughs> the very first thing. It also makes me wonder... Is the movie Super 8 because of the film that they were uh, filming for their production values? Or is the Super 8 about the connection to the old movies of their past uh, and the mother? But that's another statement. Let's talk about other truths. John, do you have something for us? What do you think if we wanted to capture the spirit of Super 8? What else would we have to include in our game regardless of the system? Oh, boy. Um, I think that probably the town has to feel really important, like the locations mm-hmm. in the town, the hallmarks and watching them, you know, descend into that chaos that we talked about with the monster affecting the whole town. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like that's pretty important and, and going to those locations and seeing the fallout, you know, would be a lot of fun and, you know, also give a lot of impact to the game. 
I think if I were to mix things up a little bit, because the first act of the movie, we were focusing on the kids and the monster is so far removed that those two groups don't actually meet. I would maybe even let my players create a townsperson who was going to be directly affected by the mystery and role play that townsperson. And they could be a throwaway townsperson. They may not come back again for the rest of the story, but that might give us uh, an idea of how it's affecting everybody else. That might be an interesting way of playing that scenario. Yeah. I feel like the uh, the scene where they're like running across town and going like in and out of these destroyed buildings and right. you know, things are like sinkholes are forming everything else is, is super iconic and was mm-hmm. just a great moment in the movie that I'd want to see that kind of thing. Yeah. But in order to get the emotional weight of that type of moment, you have to establish the town ahead of time so that there's some significance yeah. attached to it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think I think night, uh, you know, the nice thing about this and um, you know the project, like those are very easy world building session zero questions that you could just add on to the normal, right? You know, world if you're playing an RPG with world building and not you know one with GM directed world building. I'll be honest, I don't think I'm ever not going to have sessions with world building from now on. Like I kind of I've become so addicted to giving my players that chance to invest in the game that we're playing in because honestly in the X number of years that I've been playing with that sort of um, session zero, I haven't had a group dissolve into chaos because they all had something that they have created that I have as a game master have emphasized. So they always feel like no one is being left out of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that is partially just because there's so many great games that emphasize that aspect. And it's just partially how I've matured as a game master, not as a human right. being, but as a game master. <laughs> uh, and actually just to bounce off of, of what you said, John, not just the town, but like there's a moment in the movie where we have the town hall and people are, what are we going to do? This is happening. This is happening. And they're listing off problems. That's a really good place. Like that can happen in any kind of game where people get to, as a game master, I get to drop clues but I also get to flesh out a world. So even if they don't follow, you know, what happened to uh, Farmer McDonald's um, chickens, you know, like all the chickens have disappeared. Well, maybe they go investigate that and maybe that leads them to something. Maybe it doesn't, but it, it's still an interesting thing to bring up in that town meeting. You know, we get all mm-hmm. oh, my car parts have been missing. You know, we get this hint because the great thing about watching this film is we as an audience have no idea what the motivation of the creature is until the end of the film. We have no idea what it is that's doing. Like, why is it affecting the town the way it is? It's still a mystery to mm-hmm. us. And when we find it, when we actually go into its lair and we get to a better understanding of it, it's like, oh, you know, again, it rewards you for multiple viewings. Um, yes. And I think playing that town as an NPC, as actually as a playable NPC, as a, as a, um, as a town itself, I actually really like the idea. Now I kind of want to start working on, maybe that's something we can talk about, Rafe, town mechanics. Um, <laughs> how do you play as a group of, of there's 1200 people in the town of Lillian, 1200 people, one sheriff and six deputies. It gives me mm-hmm. a really good understanding of general town size. When we start looking at, for instance, kids on bikes, what else you got before Rafe? What's another truth that we could discuss? This is a little different from some of the other Kids on Bikes movies we've watched, but in this movie, the adults are firmly in charge, uh, and they are not helping the kids at any point, until right at the end when, you know, the parents kind of swoop in to help with the final rescue. 
even the parents are are not any help. So establishing that as part of your truth means you also have to help the players establish other ways to navigate around that. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have someone who is helping them out in the way they might in a, a Goonies or Lost Boys inspired campaign. It, it, the, the adults are almost the enemy, but very much an obstacle. I think the the emphasis is obstacle. The The adults will never help you do the thing you want to do. Right. They will always try to get you to do almost the opposite of what you're trying to do, right? So, uh, yeah, I agree. And as I was watching that, I can't help but think about our own rules for this podcast. I was like, there isn't an adult. The closest that we get is that Charles's parents are kind of understanding and that Donnie, who is a, technically a teenager, does help them um, peripherally with a car. And, like, if you feel that Donnie is a teen, then... That doesn't happen. If you feel that Tani's probably older than a teen, then he sort of falls into that spot. Nah, I think but he's, he's a not a useful, particularly useful character. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. I, I like that. And I think there's an easy way to gamify that as well. Um, yeah. Making them the, the, the obstacles that they're trying to work around. And maybe you could even use that in a form of railroading, right? Like where, like, well, just know that adults, when they find you, they are going to try to get you to do X, Y, and Z. So if your players go really far off the rails, they start moving away from the story in a way that you feel like it's moving away from the intention that we as a group agreed upon. You can throw an adult obstacle in there. Like, the military spring up randomly. Like, there's no reason for them to be in this location. And suddenly, all the kids are like, I don't like it when people point guns at children. Uh, And it happens in this film. It's very weird. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, the military is sinister. Like... They kill that guy. Uh, they just out and out kill kill a character. Like, you know, the one helpful scientist. I should also say the one helpful person of color in the film, and they just flat out kill him. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. agreed. I think that's um, that's a really good way of, of gamifying that that truth is adults will not help you. They will always try to make you do their thing. You can't, and, and I think it's you can't convince them because no one convinces right. them in yeah, the film. No. Yeah, yeah, there's there's no charming them. There's no yeah. There's no there's nothing to there. What else you got, Drew? <sighs> I feel like we covered a lot of things. Um, I, and as much as Doug didn't like this aspect of it, one of the things is I want to if the mystery has the mystery has an aura, and it doesn't have to do what the movie does, which is the aura is it stops weapons from it makes weapons misfire or it affects electronics. But I like the idea that it it personally, maybe not even intentionally, but there's something about the mystery that affects its surroundings. And it can be anything. Like, you don't have to make this uh, specifically an alien. It could be a ghost. It could be a uh, any. It could be a robot. Cthulhu but monster. It, it could be a Cthulhu monster. It inevitably is going to go to Call of Cthulhu because that's just how uh, the brain works. But it has an aura that has an effect. And maybe that's something that you as the game master can give to the players and go, alright, something's happening Things aren't working the way they're supposed to. What's not working and and how is it doing that? And maybe let them decide on that or if you really need them to kind of push in certain things. Because, Rafe, if you were to make this film in 2000, this is just talking about making a modern uh, kids on bikes RPG, this thing could affect cell phones. Right. This thing could affect the internet. It could absorb and, and keep that from happening. So I like the idea that it has an aura that um, will work against players in one way, and but maybe 
work for them. Because clearly, those right. kids are dead because the military is just firing randomly in that scene. In some ways, maybe the kids are saved because of that uh, aura. So I, I think that would be worth putting in there. I was under the impression that the monster was controlling the machines. Yeah, I think he is. I but think they, he is. they weren't firing. I think that, yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Oh, okay. That's an interesting That's, way of looking at it. I mean, I only it. watched it once and you both watched it multiple times. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting too because I feel like that changes throughout the movie. What the monster can and cannot do is based off of what the writer and director needs the monster to be able to can and cannot do. <laughs> yeah. um, one of my friends who is a game enthusiast and game master who's, whose opinion I respect tremendously said one of the things he didn't like about the film is that he felt the monster's threat level wasn't constant. It was always there, but it, it fluctuated so much. So for since we know that it, the Fratellis are chasing the Goonies, and if they catch the Goonies, the Goonies are dead, right? Like, we know that the threat is constant. We know in Attack the Block that if the aliens catch someone who has been marked, they're dead. Right. You know, uh, the, the threat is less uh, obvious in uh, now and then. But for instance, we know the vampires are either going to kill them or turn them. Like that, we know what their purpose is. The alien, because it's a mystery and because it's also a metaphor and an allegory, that is a bit of a problem. But it can also be a solution for gameplay. True. It, it, it could change depending on what we need it to be. And, and that's not always a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Do you got another one? I think I think the only one I would add is I think the adults have to be very dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, like that. We really do stress the the agency is always with the kids, and the only time the adults aren't dumb is when they are actively pursuing the kids as a, a viable threat. You know, like because mm-hmm. dumb adults. This is the problem we have with the Goonies, where it's like the moment the two brothers get close to one another they are less of a threat than when they are individually pursuing the Goonies, uh, which where they yeah. are stone cold killers. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Well, Drew, normally at this point, I would ask you about set pieces, but you sure. mentioned this idea of town mechanics. And I almost feel like rather than go into the set pieces we would have for this, we save that and we kind of revisit that in our intermission, this whole ta- town mechanics type thing. This is, and for very good reasons, this episode is running a bit long. So yeah, let's, let's do that. I, I was um, trying to be polite about that. Sure. <laughs> I got you, man. So, Drew, what RPGs would you use for a Super 8-inspired story? I mean, clearly Call of Cthulhu is going to be the best game that we're talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I have – this will be the third time I'm saying this. Uh, Super 8 is the most kids on bikeiest kids on bike movie out there um, <laughs> for at least the first two-thirds of it. And there is not a single aspect of this film that isn't covered in Kids on Bikes. Yeah. But – just because I like to challenge myself, I was thinking, how would I run this as Dungeons and Dragons? So I'm going to pitch you my Dungeons and Dragons Super 8 inspired thing. So here All we go. Right. You have to be first level characters. We always do this for the kids. They have to be first level characters and your modifiers have to be on the whole negative, right? You're not strong, smart, charismatic, fine. But you're very rarely in Kids on Bikes are you going to solve the problem by direct combat. Mm-hmm. A caravan carrying some sort of magic entity probably something summoned against its will comes through the town. You know, you have to establish the town, but something happens that the caravan breaks down. And until that caravan is fixed, that entity is on the loose and the entity has created an aura or barrier that is causing the greater heroes of the area to be ineffectual. 
But because our players, our PCs, are so low, they are not deemed as a threat, and the aura that is affecting everybody else is not affecting them. I think if you could target, you can play any world in D&D, play any kind of characters with those three truths, I think you have a, a fairly decent, and you follow the same truths that we're doing. I think you actually could do this in D&D, which is kind of interesting. It is. Yeah. Again, basically the same thing could be said for a Call of Cthulhu game, but your characters are going to either go mad or die by the end of it, because that's how you play a correct <laughs> game of Call of Cthulhu. You could potentially take on board, if you're doing a space space station, larger spaceship, you know, the space station that you've been a part of, the spaceship you've been a part of, takes on uh, a new passenger, like someone has come aboard and it has affected the ship in some negative way, and only your group, maybe you're the daycare or you're on a field trip to a different part of the ship, um, you have to get from point A to point B to jettison it, release it, um, something along those lines. Didn't, didn't they do that as an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation? You would know that better than I. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid that is that is one of my blind spots for pop culture, sadly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I knew a lot about the animated series, and that's about, about it. Because it used to come on Nickelodeon. I used to watch it all the time. But yeah, so I, I think clearly Kids on Bikes is the, the way to go with it. And there are other games that you could do it. But I, I mean, I think... With the truths that we've put together, this should be pretty easy to to pull off as long yeah. as you, all your players are on board right from the from the get go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, without further ado, I have to say, join us in two weeks for our Super Eight Intermission episode, where we will discuss our second opinions on the film, anything that we may have missed, uh, a whole slew of potential mechanics that Rafe is going to throw at me. I'm very excited about how you NPC a town is clearly going to go on there. It has been a little while between this episode and our last episodes. We have gotten quite a bit of mail. Uh, so we are going to go over some of our listener emails and discussion. We are going to chat about the many things that we have seen probably on Kickstarter, many of which are done. Um, right. I've gotten, <laughs> I've gotten some of mine that we have, that we talked about in our first episode. So we can talk maybe a little bit about that. Oh, I have nice. a really good one that I'm quite excited about. If you have Ooh. opinions uh, of your own about anything that we've discussed, maybe even questions for, for Doug and John that we could maybe email them and get a response to, you can continue this conversation uh yeah. rafe how could they continue this conversation you can email us at the never say die podcast all thrown together the never say die podcast at gmail.com you can find us on facebook at never say die cast it is a private group but all you have to do is request membership and you'll be in uh we're on twitter at never say die cast as well you can find me individually on twitter at town hess that's t-a-l-n-h-e-s-s and I'm at Drew M. Meyer. That's M-E-Y-E-R. We want to make sure we thank our guests, our first guests, uh, Jonathan and Doug, for joining us for this wonderful conversation. Uh, Doug, you're oh, you're still out pleasure. there. Thank you. But Jonathan, you're still here. So thank you uh, especially. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. This is wonderful. Uh, thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song and Megan Daly for our show's artwork. Before we let you go, John, if people want to find you online, do you want to be found online? How would they find you? Uh, and do you have anything that uh, any projects that are coming up that you want to mention? Yeah. So um, people can find me on Twitter at John Gilmore, J-O-N-G-I-L-M-O-U-R. And, you know, we're real excited for people to get to play the new Kids on Bike stuff when it's ready. I recently had a game on Kickstarter called Colab, which is about down on your luck scientists, uh, mad scientists that have to share a co-working space. So that's what Colab is all about. And besides that, I don't have a lot of stuff that I can announce right now, but a lot of irons in the fire. So just keep an eye on Twitter. It's a good place to keep your irons. Yeah. They get cold otherwise. <laughs> yeah. 
You don't want a cold iron unless you're fighting fairies, right? Isn't it cold iron is is what you use to... Uh, cold steel. To, cold yeah, steel. Cold steel. Yeah. There we go. All right. Wait, cold steel. Wasn't that Zoolander? Never mind. You know what? I'm going <laughs> to shut up now. It's awesome. Uh, Zoolander is the natural enemy of fairies. <laughs> you go. <laughs> and there that's canon go. now. <laughs> yeah, oh. that, that was the uh, the third, uh, the second sequel that I pitched to them, but in everyone. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, now I need to do a changeling. I need to do a changeling Zoolander. So uh, this would be, hold on, I've got it. Um, a fashion shoot goes wrong. They get pulled into the fairy realm. And the only way to defeat them is to defeat them in a uh, walk-off. Um, fey realm versus, okay. All right. I like this. I, I'm in. It, it almost writes itself. I feel like this is a, a future one pager that we could put together. John, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about this. Well, let's, we'll, we're going to put a new f- iron in the fire. <laughs> Um, because that's oh, where they go. A Midsummer's Night Zoolander. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Um, all right. A mid, a mid, a mid Zoolander's dream. A no. mid, uh, yeah, yeah. There you go. We'll there we there. go. A mid Zoolander's Night's dream. Ah, uh, Rafe, you you were you were saying. And remember, even if your kids are completely superfluous to the story that got people to watch your movie in the first place, never say die. 